Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi and Monsignor Steenson, and we're continuing in our study with St. Irenaeus's Against Heresies. And uh, against heresies, Monsignor, though, that's just a problem that Irenaeus had many years ago. We don't have that problem anymore in, in our church and world today. Is that correct? I think we're as inundated with it as he was. <laughs> I know it'd be interesting to have him here and looking at the voices in our culture and, and wondered, would he use the same strategy to to deal with the false voices that he was dealing with uh, at the time? And those of you that have been following us, thank you so much. Uh, and we apologize, if you will, for the, the slow pace. But part of that is because there's so much great stuff in here. Um, and Monsignor, our goal today is to get through book four, chapters 12 through 16. We're going to do that. And because partially is that next week we want to jump into chapters 17 and 18, which are about the Eucharist. Uh, we want to make sure we get to that next week. Right, Monsignor? But, yeah. but, I was. I had to apologize to the audience. I, I, I'm not a professor, and as I prepared for today's program, it reminded me of why I'm not a professor because I could never, ever, ever be ready for a class. I, I never get it because I keep. I found Monsignor. I don't know how you did, but I found this section, which in a way we were maybe thought that we'd just skim through this thing to get to chapter 17, but. Literally, between the last week's program and this week, I've read this, these chapters at least three times, and my pages are so full of comments and underlines. There's so much in here that I, I wasn't sure how we could cover it in this one section. Yeah, but you, you've uh, done a wonderful job with a little chart that um, I think summarizes this so beautifully, this passage. So. Well. I, those of you who are watching, if you're listening, it might be hard to, I'll try and describe what it is, but I, I did. I put together a chart, and basically, and Monsignor, talk about this. You, you're the patristic scholar here. You know that one way to study the patristics like Irenaeus is to, to focus on the battle that he is fighting. The, you know, the details of it, you know, the, the beliefs of the Gnostics and then his strategy, his apologetics. And then we focus on, well, what did they believe? And then how did he answer that? And of course, we did that in books one, two and three. But he's continuing to do that here. And he has one particular uh, battle he's fighting in the background with this. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm not a scholar. I'm just a lousy farmer. You know, what's more important to me is not so much that battle, but the way he thinks, the way he understands salvation history, the way he understands Christ. And, and that's the foundation behind his apologetics. And... Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, picking up on what you said a few minutes ago about what would he do if he was, if Irenaeus came and dealt with the situation we face in the church today, I, I suspect he would counsel the same thing, which is um, you Catholic people need to know the whole of the scriptures. You need to know uh, revelation from beginning to end and the whole story, the whole big picture. Because I think that's one of the things that um, leads us down a wrong path is that we focus in on one little thing and we lose sight of, of, of the larger perspective. And uh, he, you know, and everything he does, he, you know, his books are long because he wants us to understand the whole of of revelation. 
I think as I read through these last sections during the last week from, again, I reread from chapter 12 all the way through actually 18, just kept reading it through and trying to get the feel for it. I'm, I'm astounded on his ability to know scripture. And if anything, maybe that's part of our problem today when we're dealing with the voices in our culture, whether they're coming on the evening news or from some blog posts that we like to follow on the internet, or the, and some of those are pretty critical of the church today, critical of the mm-hmm. Christian faith. And we're living at a time when uh, we, we're anticipating great battles, like Irenaeus was anticipating mm-hmm. battles. So you know, with, with all this going on today, the importance of being able to have listen to the right voices. And the chart that I don't know if you guys can see it yet, but the reason I felt it was important to put this down, Monsignor, for us to use as a grid behind we may not get into uh, chapter in verse today when we look at chapters 12 through 16, but we're going to talk overall about what he's talking because Irenaeus doesn't put thoughts together bullet point like we might if we were writing today. He's, he's, he's in the midst of an argument and he's putting it down on paper. Um, but the reason I wanted to have this down on this chart is because to recognize that even today, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's emphasis on a hermeneutic of continuity is very important, I believe. Extremely important. And, and maybe in the way I look at it is more important even than those that I hear that emphasizes hermeneutic of continuity. How many of us, we learned our faith from a catechism in, in classes, and we think of the church as starting with Jesus, and that's our hermeneutic continuity. If we want to know where we're at today, well, let's go back to Jesus. Let's go back to the writings of the apostles. Let's go back to the, to the epistles. Let's go back to the early church fathers. Wow. I mean, that's ressourcement, as they said in Vatican II. Let's yeah, go back. That's right. Let's go back. It's a... It's not, a, it's not a brand new thing. We're not starting from scratch in 1963. And those that are critical of the church today want to say it was all, it was all messed up in, 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 in the 60s. And, and so Vatican II, they want to throw it out and because they see it as a rupture. Whereas the fathers of Vatican II, as well as Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, were saying, no, you've got to understand it as, as a continuity. Mm-hmm. And the very first footnote in Lumen Gentium is, I, th- I think it's Lumen Gentium, the very first footnote says this is built on the foundation. And so, but to me, the, the hermeneutic of continuity that we see in, in Irenaeus is that it just, it doesn't just go back to Jesus. The underlying, and Monsignor, you can back me up on this, the underlying strength of his argument against the, the Gnostics is that the, history, the hermeneutic of continuity goes back not just to the Pharisees and not just to the, the, uh, the deuterocanonical laws. It doesn't just go back to the Ten Commandments. It goes back to the beginning. And because of that, that's his grounding for his argument against the Gnostics. Absolutely. And Christ, the Son of God, is the active subject throughout, from the very beginning to the very end. It's all is. That is an extremely important point. Those of you, my encouragement to you all, if you're really wanting to understand Irenaeus, is you read chapter 12 through 16 again after we've had our overview today. Uh, it connects with everything we said before, but what Monsignor just said is one of the absolute keys. Christ, the Word has always been united with the Father from the beginning, one author, all the way through. And there's a number of places where he 
he talks about that, you know, the, the, uh, the word receiving glory from the Father from the very beginning, sharing in that glory. Absolutely. And, you know, for Irenaeus, and we'll, I think we can point it out as we go through this a little bit, he specifically makes this point, but um, Christ, the incarnate Christ, um, before his incarnation, he is God's voice in, in all of these encounters with, with God in the Old Testament. Um, they're, they're not meeting the Father, they're meeting the Son. I was, that's always had a deep impression on me. And that's one of the ways to think about how this is all tied together. Well, with that as, as an introduction, let's go to the chart, if we will. And I'm assuming... Yeah. That uh, that uh, Bill, our studio manager, producer, director, all wise and all knowing uh, man who keeps this whole uh, podcast going. I see him in the studio over there. Uh, I think he's put the chart up for everyone to look. Now, what you're seeing in front of you, what you're seeing in front of you, is the entire history of mankind. Right, Monsignor? This is the That's right. Uh-huh. This is the entire the history from beginning to end. Yeah. Beginning to end. And um, you know, we're pulling together things that that Irenaeus has said from the beginning of his book, but we have the very beginning of Adam and Eve, God as creator. We've got to remember that the underlying precept that pulls everything together is beginning with the idea that God is the source, the maker, the creator of everything. Who's, who's the author of Revelation? It's the same God. He's the creator. There's no other God. There's no bunches of gods or mother gods before him. There's God, the creator, and he's the, and that begins. He's the beginning. And all the way through Adam and Eve, now, I condensed this chart, obviously, but you could have all the major people that are there on the side. You got Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, and the second coming. That's the whole salvation history in a nutshell, right there. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, second coming. Now, for those of you uh, that are aware of a thing called covenant theology, there it is in a nutshell. Irenaeus talked about it a couple of chapters earlier. The covenants that God makes, you see them, the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, God will never send a flood again, so he has assigned the rainbow, the Abrahamic covenant of a, of, a, of a family and a promised land, Moses, the law, uh, David, the Davidic kingdom, Christ, the new covenant. And of course, the second coming. Now, we have to remember when you look at that flow, there were always successors to Adam. You have, uh, you know, you, there's Seth and Shem and Enoch and all those in there. Abraham, you got Isaac, Jacob, and 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 uh, uh, Moses. You've got Joshua and the judges, Samuel and Saul, leading to David. Then, of course, then you have Solomon and, and then the divided kingdom leading to Christ. Then, of course, Christ, you've got the apostles, you've got Peter and the apostles, and you've got popes, and you've got bishops and ministers, and you've got all that leading to the second coming. But the, the key, remember, in the chart is that the one thing that the prophets and Christ and the apostles emphasize as this time between Christ and the second coming is the last days. This is it, guys. The chart ain't going any farther. After the second coming is a new earth and a new heaven and judgment leading to the new heaven and new earth. And that's a whole other description of what that's going to be. But the point is we are in the last time. I put a red arrow there that were in there somewhere. You know, how close to the second coming do you put it is all up to where you're at theologically. But um, but that's the point. And, and Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham, Moses and David all look forward to Christ. And when Christ came, he inaugurated this period in which we live. 
this last times. And especially, for example, if you turn to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, where Paul talks about what it's going to be like in the last days, he's not talking about something that's going to come yet. He's talking about what began immediately in this time we're in, the struggles that the church has gone through in its battle. So first, Monsignor, before I get into the other part, anything you want to add to that flow of salvation history there? Uh, no, I, you know, I think it's, uh, you've been very, you've been faithful to um, the great moments that St. Irenaeus um, lays out here. I think maybe the only thing I'd add to it is for um, our participants, if they want to, if they find this section of against heresies to be a little dense. And there's another of Irenaeus that we talked about called the demonstration yes. of the apostolic preaching. Yes. And, and basically that is written, um, it's a simpler, clearer level, I think. And, and if you can get a copy of that, there are good translations of that around. Um, he basically lays out what we're doing here. It's just all laid out. You know, he demonstrates how it begins at the beginning, and it's all one story. I forgot about that. Yeah. I read that just before we started our whole series. I You can buy, mm-hmm. you, you can order that from online. Uh, small little book. Excellent. And uh, should be and read. Was, he used, yeah, he used it for catechetical purposes. Yep. So it's a wonderful teaching book. Excellent. Delightful, too. All right. Very good. Shoot, I wish I had referred back to that when I was preparing to fit him in here. It would be very interesting to do that. But given that that's the whole history, and, you know, you could talk about all the things that you remember from reading Old Testament, Adam and Eve in the fall, and at that point God could have said, you know, I've had it with these people. This is enough. But he, he doesn't give up. So he gives Adam and Eve a second chance. They're they're kicked out of the garden with a second chance. But even with uh, a couple good ancestors named Enoch and Methuselah, it didn't go very well. So before Noah, he says their heart, everybody's heart's lousy. I've had it with this. I'm destroying the whole thing. But then he sees Noah. And so there's another chance to start over. So he starts over with Noah. Everybody else is destroyed. You start over with Noah, and he has his sons. And one of his sons, I'm having, a, I'm having an elderly moment here, Shem. Shem, yeah, Seth was Adam's yeah. son. Shem, yeah. there's the thread. The remnant comes through from Adam through Noah, the remnant, through Shem, and then it grows, and you got a lot of folk, and pretty soon they think they are the, uh, the bee's knees, so they're going to build a, a tower to be higher than God, and God steps in and says, we got to stop this. And that's where we have Babel, and that's the instance where God, in, in response to his promise— uh, has to justly act, divides everyone up. That's the first chance where God responds to our to humanity's insurrection by dividing us. He did that a couple other times in history, which we could see. Uh, he he brings about division, but one of those languages, one of those languages, is with a little family called Eber. Eber. And you know where we get Eber? What came out of Eber? The Eber ooze. And the Hebrew language. And so we have one of those languages called Hebrew in the Hebrew. So we have this thread, the remnant comes through. And then from that, out of that, we have uh, a man that God recognizes as hard as Abraham. Gives a brand new start. Thought maybe it would be with Lot because it got so bad that he had to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he started over again. Well, Lot, Lot was not a very good father because his daughters, he, he, you know, Lot almost gave his daughters to the people in Sodom 
So he wasn't a good fatherly figure for his daughters. His daughters tricked him and got him drunk, and then they had had boys out of that, which led to uh, nations that were always a problem to Israel for the rest of their time, you know, the daughters of Lot. So, so we don't see Lot anymore. That didn't work out. So God gives Abraham a second chance. It's not going to be through Lot. It's going to be through Isaac and Jacob. And so we have that. And then they get lost in Egypt and they're gone. And they, and they lose it. As, and we'll see that later. Irenaeus will say that. Mm. But God starts over with Moses. Going to give and the remnant again. We're going to, we're not, God's not going to let up. You know, God's steadfast love, his mercy continues through Moses. But, and I'm just giving the overview, we'll go look at it through, through the words of Irenaeus in a little bit. He starts over, God communicates his truth to them, and we see ups and downs and problems. And, you know, I mean, it gets so bad that Moses even doesn't even get to enter the promised land because he oversteps his bounds gets passed on to Joshua and then eventually to Judges. But every time the people keep saying, yeah, we'll follow, and then they don't. Yeah, we'll follow, then they don't. Yeah, they and God says over and over, I have had it with these people. What a bunch of nincompoops. I think that's in the original Hebrew. And then he finally gives them again, and then the people finally go to Samuel, one of the last judges, and says, we've had it. We want our own king. Give us a king. We want an earthly kingdom. In other words, they're saying, no, this invisible kingdom. We want an earthly king. And that's what God says to Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So, okay, let's go with the program. Um, Romans 8, 28. In other words, all things work together to good. Those that love God. So we'll, we'll give it a shot here. They pick Saul. He didn't work out. Then God says, what I'm interested in is somebody who's got the right heart, not somebody that looks good. And then you have David. The remnant continues. And we have David, and then we have Solomon, and the remnant is continues. Solomon's a disappointment, and such a disappointment that God said, I've had it, and he divides the kingdom to these two guys, to David's sons, Rehoboam, but then to one of David's servants, Jeroboam. And he tells Jeroboam, if you stay faithful to the precepts of nature, I'll be with you. Of course, he doesn't. And then we have the whole kingdom through the promise that God will never abandon Judah because of David's heart. And so we see the continuity of Judah and the look forward to the fulfillment of that promise to David, the remnant, looking forward to Christ. Christ comes as the new king. God's going to start over again with Christ. Everything is different with grace and a new life. And then now we're in this, if you will, the last chance, guys. We're in the last chance. We've seen over and over again, God starts over again. We're in it. Christ, he passed it on. He prays it will stay united. But he hands it over and then we have the church. And this is the end of it. So... Irenaeus, if you will, is taking that which Christ passed to his apostles and then passed on to their, and then he takes that and expounds it for the people during the midst of the battle. And the battle we're in, if you will, is the same battle that was there before Noah, before Abraham, before Moses, and before David. It was the, the challenge of the devil to destroy the remnant. All right. I probably went a far field, Monsignor. I've seen you there shaking your no, face. but no, That's right. <laughs> It's a magisterial. Well, overview. my point is, we have this long salvation history, and uh, so how does it fit to these chapters? And what I've done in this chart, Monsignor, and, and of course you looked at it too, so it's not my chart; yeah, it's our chart. But these are the the way that Irenaeus understands the transmission of the truth from the very beginning all the way through salvation history, really to the time in which he's living, right? So we start at the very beginning, and the words that Irenaeus uses to describe the beginning of truth is, he uses the phrase, the precepts of nature. 
in another place, the natural precepts of the law. And what he is saying there is that, I think, is that when God created man in his image, that he planted within the heart of man these natural precepts of the law, which Irenaeus says in a number of places, we hear about when our Lord is challenged by someone, what's the greatest commandment? And our Lord says, it's to love your Lord, your Lord, your God, with your heart, my soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets are built on this. And what Irenaeus is saying, he, that's built on this, which came from the beginning. It came, and those are our early fathers in the faith. They lived under that, what should we say, dispensation before the giving of the law. Um, they had um, how, not, the ability is not the right way to say it, but they were able to live faithful to God by basically being true to the image of God that was in them. But that got defaced as as we get more and more sin. And then we have the law, which has a disciplinary aspect. To, um, For example, I'm just going to go on with what you've said there. Um, if you if you look at if you look all the way to page three forty nine, and you look at the bottom, chapter sixteen two, mm-hmm. he says not now that man was not justified by these. In other words, he's saying here he's been talking about circum the the laws of circumcision and the laws of the Sabbath. And he makes a big point here. He says that man was not justified by these, but they were given as a sign to the people. It is proved in that Abraham himself, without circumcision and without keeping the Sabbath, believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Yay. And Lot, and he goes on and talks about Lot and Noah and Enoch, which is what you were talking about, Monsignor. Mm-hmm. It was in here. Right? And he That's says, uh-huh. he says later that in, in number, in, in section three of chapter 16 on page 350, after he summarized the fact that that Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Lot, and Moses. Now think about that. All of them were before the written law, but they were they were right with God. Well, how did they know? And someone else that, that Irenaeus doesn't mention, that's somebody by the name of Melchizedek. Yes. How did they know what was right? Why were there? Why were they pleasing to God? And what Irenaeus says, because they didn't need. Is, and this is section three of of chapter sixteen. Wherefore yeah, on, they on page three fifty there. Yes, right in the middle. Yeah. Wherefore they did. Wherefore then did the Lord not make a covenant with the fathers? In other words, why didn't He do this with? With Abraham and, and Enoch and, and Melchizedek, he says, because the law was not appointed for righteous men, and the fathers were righteous, being having the meaning of the Decalogue written in their heart and souls, i.e. loving God who made them and abstaining from wrong towards their neighbor. And so it was necessary for them to be warned by, so it was unnecessary Unnecessary. for them to be warned by writings of reproof since they had righteousness in themselves. We'll pause there. So that's what, I mean, this is, for those of you coming my background, evangelical background, scripture only and all that, you know, this the idea of having the the knowledge of God in the conscience and heart of every person who's ever lived 
was a, a kind of a novel thing for me. I didn't really kind of buy that as a Calvinist, you know, that how do you understand that? Well, but that's what Aaron Ans is emphasizing. And, and um, I, you know, the next sentence in oh, this yeah. passage, right? I, um, when this righteousness and love toward God passed into oblivion. So we can't, we can't simply say, well, we'll just go back and live like the early, the early patriarchs. We are not able to do that now. Um, because something has been deformed in the image of God in us. And, you know, we were, we were talking about this a little bit, Marcus, before we started the podcast today, um, that it's probably good to keep in mind that when Irenaeus is talking about these natural precepts, um, we probably shouldn't import into this the way that we sometimes think about the natural law. It, it address it goes. That's a whole different subject, basically, as as you said wisely, um, because it suggests that you know if we only get our stuff together, we could live right in a worthy fashion, and and um, we're we're not able to do that because well, of what happened. Wouldn't that be what was the fear behind? Pelagius and and those speakers yeah. was that the f- fifth century? Um, yeah, fifth you know, century. Uh-huh. Um, now, whether Pelagius himself actually said what he was accused of, I've read some good writings to say maybe he wasn't, but he got blamed for it. Whatever. Um, but this idea of just what you said—that we have it within us to be able to follow God now. The, to me, the danger of, of the Pelagian idea is that we have the abilities to be perfect. And whether Pelagius— if we, our, if we could only get our stuff together, it's a matter of the will. Pelagius and, basically thought that, yeah. And, and that idea hasn't gone away. No. And I think that's one of the most important things for— you know, if I was doing spiritual direction with someone, I think I would really want to spend some time— on that subject, um, you can't, you cannot be a faithful Christian just by doing things. Yep, yep. And in fact, as we'll get to in a moment, uh, and he emphasizes that that's how Christ expanded the natural precepts of the law by emphasizing it isn't just what you do or don't do, it's your desires. Exactly. Exactly. It, there's, there's, it's a deeper thing, yeah. a problem here that you have to deal with. And so that's yeah. the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. That's the Sermon on the because, Mount. Because these are really, fathers, we're, in their hearts, we were completely, totally devoted to God. Um. And we have this divided loyalty ourselves, you know. That, that's the root of the whole idea of concupiscence, you know, this idea that we're in yeah. love with ourselves. Or, or I was, you know, when you were talking now, I was just hearing Frank Sinatra in my back of my mind. I'll, he did it his way. I'll do it my way. Um, yeah. You know, I don't. I don't know the background between behind Sinatra singing that song. I don't think. And my point is, I don't think he wrote that song. No, probably not. So, no, he, but here's the point. So here we have this song. You know, I'll do it my yeah. way. I did it my way, and all that. So there's a song. Now we don't know the theology of the guy that wrote that song. You might have been totally whatever. You know, and he might have been a totally unreligious person about life. I did it my way, okay? But Sinatra is supposedly a Catholic. So somebody puts a song in front of him to sing, and apparently he didn't read it and say, nah, I'm not going there. You know what I'm saying? He didn't see a problem in it, so he sang it and it became his number one song. Excuse me, that... <laughs> That we need to be careful with what we sing in public, what we say in public, what we do, because whether we wrote it or not, if we sing it, say it, publish it, write it, it's us. 
And Irenaeus is saying, cut through this. And he says it later with when the Pharisees, the traditions of the elders, and that's in chapter 12, verses 1, when they take and they add it and subtract to them, make it their own. They come up, they want to come up with their own way of salvation, negating everything from before. And we'll get to yeah. that in a moment. But I want to go back yeah. to what you were saying. I think we're on the same page here because on the other hand, although Enoch seemed to be a pretty sh- straight shooter because, you know, he was he was taken to heaven. Uh, what's the word, you know? Uh, uh, Translated. Yeah, there you go. Translated. I was going to say zapped, but that's the yeah. Greek <laughs> Greek version of yeah. the translated. But, um, but obviously Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses were not saints. They weren't perfect. They had uh, many flaws. And in fact, when you when you follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham's pretty good dude. Uh, Isaac is pretty good. Jacob's nasty, and he doesn't get that much better to the end. The one redeeming quality is when you read through the sons. Is Judah is starting to shine already in the midst of his sons? Already we see Judah shining. Judah was the one who said, uh, "Maybe we shouldn't do that." You know, or when when they want to take Benjamin, Judah says, "Well, it'll be on my shoulders. If, if Benjamin doesn't come back, it'll be me." And I'm thinking, "Whoa, there, there's there's some redeeming quality even in Judah way back then." But my point is that they aren't perfect, but they had the knowledge in here. But from the beginning, every single human being has always had freedom to respond to that which they knew. Mm-hmm. And that's different than my Calvinist Lutheran background. Abraham was free, but he had the knowledge of righteousness in him. And he didn't need it written, as Irenaeus says, because they had it in here. They had it in here, which is why when the people were destroyed by the floodwaters, they were guilty because they had it in here. Mm-hmm. And so God was just in his punishment. Um, when Babel was divided, God was just in his punishment because the people knew. The people knew. Um, even the Egyptians knew. I mean, it's my position that Pharaoh, when it talks about God hardening his heart, Pharaoh still had to have the freedom to respond. Otherwise, he's not to blame. So he still had the freedom, even though God uh, hardened his heart. He still has the freedom. Same thing with, well, the same thing with Judas. You know, Judas was free to respond. So, but that brings you back to what you had said. If you look at the chart, so in the very beginning, we have the precepts of nature that, or the natural precepts of the law, which are love the Lord your God, your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a part of the conscience of every human being. It's a part of what they, that then going down the decade is written within their heart and soul, such that without circumcision and the Sabbath laws, they are righteous within their hearts. That's the way Irenaeus puts this. And then Abraham is given a sign, the sign of circumcision, which, as Irenaeus says, um, this didn't come before Abraham was declared righteous. This is later. And it is a sign that separates out this promised family from the rest. Irenaeus says that somewhere. I'm sorry. I, I don't. Oh, I know where that is. I know where that is. That's in. That's in 16. Um, I'm sorry. That's up and on 16.1. As the circumcision that God gave it also, not as conveying perfect righteousness, but for a sign that the race of Abraham might remain always distinguishable. So it wasn't in being circumcised that a person was made righteous. 
what made them righteous was obeying the perfect nature that's on their hearts. But this circumcision was therefore a sign of obedience to be a part of God's family, but it also was a sign to distinguish them as God's covenant was carried out. And then, Monsignor, you had said that, as, as Irenaeus points out there in the middle of 350, that these natural precepts were lost in Egypt. Now, my one qualm to that, Monsignor, with what you said earlier, is that Vatican II in Lumen Gentium chapter... 16, which I don't have in front of me. So, and since you don't have it in front of you, then you can't quibble with what I'm going to say. So, in, in, in <laughs> I, it's, it's five feet from me if you oh, need it. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that's good social distance. Uh, <laughs> but my point is the, the foundation to the church's commitment to the mission field is the assumption that the precepts of nature are still there on people's consciences. Yes. We have something to build with. It's, you know, the words yeah. they're not, but, and so that, that isn't Pelagianism that said they got everything they need in here and they can do it. No, we're, we've got the thing called concupiscence, which is what's left over from the fall that is going mm -hmm. to prevent us from following those natural precepts that are within. But that's why we recognize that at the core of even non-Christian religions is this desire that's been there from the beginning in all human beings to, uh, to want God. In Romans 1, it talks about the evidence of God is there in creation. We are without excuse, he says, because the evidence is there. We can see it in God's creation. So, the idea that it's the everything was lost completely in Egypt, um, I'd at least maybe quibble with Irenaeus a little bit and say it was terribly overshadowed. Oh, you know why it wasn't lost? I'll tell you why it wasn't lost. Irenaeus, because of the midwives. Oh, yes, yes. The midwives, when Pharaoh said, get rid of your kids, but yeah. the, there was midwives that remembered. So mm -hmm. there was still a little faith twickling through there in the midwives. I'm sorry, go ahead. But, yeah, but, you know, after when they came back from Egypt, their relationship with God was changed. Yep. They now were in a, you pointed out in the chart, a servile relationship. Yeah. And so the law, the law is basically um, the, the the things that govern the relationship between a servant and the master. I was going to say the way I would understand it is if you brought yeah. up your children with the natural precepts, you, and and you didn't need to write down anything for them because they had it as a part of their being, right? And then they left. And got so involved in another culture and another way of worshiping God and another way of doing things that it so overshadowed everything that you had taught them. And then, like the prodigal son, they come home mm -hmm. and you rescue them from that. And now they're in your home. You can no longer depend on that which you taught them as a child, though you can believe it's still in there somewhere, but it's covered with stuff. Other, you know, they're worshiping all these goofy things. And we see it come out again with the golden calf. But so how do I, how do I as a father with my son get him to remember? Well, the first thing that God did after rescuing Israel, it's Irenaeus emphasizes, I wish I don't have the reference here, but he the reason that God rescued them is that they might hear him. That they might hear him. I, I just think that's fascinating. In other words, with all the voices and all the temptations and all the good, good and bad out there, 
they can't hear God except those good midwives. They can't hear God. So he brings them out so that once he's away, they can hear him again. Okay. So again, like a, like a parent bringing your child out of the mess so they can hear you again. But the problem is they can't hear you because they have a new hermeneutic that was shaped in Egypt. So how do you get them to hear? Well, you begin by, okay, I'll tell you what, let me give you the basics. So he takes the basics of the precepts of the natural law. I got to be careful saying natural law because we don't mean the capital NL that we have in modern philosophy, but, and he puts them down and they number 10. And so what, Irenaeus is saying, in my view, is that these 10 things that were written down that we call the Ten Commandments were not new at all. They were not new at all. They'd been there from the beginning. They, you know, in other words, Adam essentially had it in his conscience. Noah, love the Lord your God, you know, and, and all the Ten Commandments. But they're written down here. That's right. That's a great point, because as we get toward the end of our passage, uh, our passage today, Irenaeus points out that in the um, in Christ now, as we live in in Christ and in this new in this new covenant, um, those laws, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, all um, all those things. A Christian, a person who follows Jesus Christ goes beyond that. They don't focus on the externals. They, there's no need for the commandment to not commit adultery because the heart is converted. Yep, yep. And Ar- so on. Ar- I just was very moved by that, you know. Irenaeus uses the imagery in this section of the rich young ruler that crumbs to Christ. Says, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus says, have you followed the commandments? And, you know, and, and the guy says, well, which commandments? And so Jesus goes through. He doesn't give all 10, but he goes through the basics. And actually, I forget which, whether it's Luke or Matthew, he throws in one that isn't one of the 10. And it's like, well, how's that fit in there? Well, it's because he's not so much focusing on the 10, he's focusing on the natural precepts of the law that have been there from the beginning that are in everyone's heart. And that's what the man says, I've done that from the beginning. They're itemized in the 10, but, but when, you're, when you've been changed towards God, it's as if these awaken within you, and you know they're true. You know that you, you know they're there. And you're moving, I mean, the whole the purpose of the law is to discipline so that one can move from being a servant to being a son or a daughter again. And so I don't want to jump ahead of the story here, but, um, well, here it, it, Marcus, if I could, Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. I go ahead. Go just, ahead. Yeah. I just wanted to, uh, on at the beginning of chapter 15 on page 346. Yes. Um, I thought this was a wonderful summary, summation. The law was both a discipline to them and a prophecy of things to come. For God indeed did at first admonish them by the precepts of nature, which he gave at the beginning, fixed in men, that is, by the Ten Commandments, which if a man fulfill not, he hath no salvation, and required no more of him. Um, and and then of course it tells about how they you know they they turn um, towards slavery instead of freedom at top of page three forty seven. Um, so the law was basically given to bring them back um, to a relationship of of children in a family instead of servants in a family. Yeah. The. That's absolutely a great section because there he emphasizes the precepts of nature in the very beginning were, mm-hmm. in essence, the Ten Commandments. They, they were fixed in men and required no more of that. They knew that. But as you said at the bottom, but when they turned themselves to the making of a calf, 
Now, why is it significant, the making of a calf? Because that's the stuff they had learned in Egypt. So they have this baggage, like in Pilgrim's Progress, you know, with Christian having that burthen on his back. They have this baggage that they, they can't let go of. So he has to expand beyond the 10 with a long itemization mm-hmm. of laws and sacrifices and all those things that you read about in, in uh in the end of, of Exodus and then Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all these things are added on as chains, Irenaeus says. They're chains of slavery to, to, to uh, as a means of reaching the soul through the body. That's Irenaeus, reaching yeah. the soul through the body. We are slaves. We are in line. We are going he, 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 because we did it to ourselves because we built that stupid calf. And Aaron says, "No, he threw the gold into the fire and it just popped out." Well, that's not exactly how it happened. We all know that. So, but, but they're bringing back the, the, that which they're attached to, which is very interesting. When you say what what was the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "To let go of your attachments." Because yeah. we still have those things. We, we, we still have those things. But that's why he had to cut through when he came forward. Well, in, in the chart, we have the Sabbath laws are added as a part of the Ten Commandments. So they're not added as the constraints of the servile law. The Sabbath laws are taking what they always knew, but they're helping them cut through the baggage they brought from Egypt to understand how to follow God. And as Irenaeus points out on page 350, 349, um, he says, as for the Sabbath, and this is uh, section 16, it might, it taught perseverance in serving God all the day. Yeah, that's a cool, isn't that a beautiful I just love, I underlined that several times. Um, I mean, it's kind of, that's like what the church has done, a liturgical year. uh Liturgy of the hours. Right now we're in Advent. The consecration of time. It's it's just. The sanctification of time. It's what he says here. It's, it's, it taught perseverance and serving God all the day. That's what he did right there with the Sabbath laws. But then he adds the law, the precepts of the servile state, as we've been talking about. And this became a great burden to the people. And then, you know, all the sacrificial rules and regulations that they had to do, and, and you know, all the feasts and all the different ways that Leviticus about how to live with one another. He's taking that which we were taught from the very beginning, and he's helping them see, as like children again, you, you know, how to cut through all the baggage. This is what you have to do to get your soul back in line because your soul, their souls have been so far off base. How do you bring it back? Well, he's, he's, he's chaining the body, he says. But, but in fact, the sign that it had become such a burden is that up to the time of Christ, now you have what he called at the beginning of chapter 12, the traditions of the elders. And we talked about that last week. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're not comfortable with the law, so they're coming up with their own things, adding to, subtracting from, embellishing, sometimes making things more burdensome for the people, but not so much for themselves. Jesus said they put burdens on people's backs that they themselves won't even want to carry. They make disciples for themselves more worthy of hell than they, you know, so all that stuff that that he talks about, I think it's Matthew 23, chapter 12, the, you know, woe to you vipers and all that. Well, he's talking about this stuff. So in essence, the common people of the time of Christ, um, what a confusion. He Jesus talks about them sheep without a shepherd. I mean, think about how the common people of Christ's day, how would they know what's true? I mean, do they even know the law of Moses anymore? 
Do they know the Ten Commandments anymore? Do they know that which is in their conscience anymore? Because they've been taught by their leaders all these contradictory rules. Uh, A a Sabbath journey is a certain length of time. Well, how do you get to your Aunt Tilly's if she's living three Sabbath days away? Well, you can only go so far on a Sabbath. So what you do is you get a a servant to go out there and drop a piece of your property every Sabbath distance away so that you're never a Sabbath distance away from a piece of your property so you can get over to the Aunt Tilly's. I mean, that's what they did to get around the law, right? Yeah. And But Christ introduces what Irenaeus calls the precepts of the perfect life. The precepts of the perfect life. Christ, and this is in, on the bottom of page 343, he talks about the natural precepts, and then he talks about the, the movement of becoming friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it says in uh, the middle of section four, and all the natural precepts then being common to us in them, in them they had their beginning and source. In us they received their increase and completion. For to assent unto God and to follow his word and to love him above all things and one's neighbor as oneself, um, to abstain from every evil work and all such precepts as are common to both demonstrate one and the same God. So that's his argument, the, the, the fact that this is in all of us. And this is our Lord, the word of God, who first indeed drew men as slaves to God, but afterwards liberated those who are subject unto him. And that's where he quotes from John chapter 15, I have called you friends. Anyway, anyway, uh, if you folks, if you read this, you will see all these things that come in and out of his arguments as he goes. But these, he sets up a new way of life, which has to do with freedom, but it has to do with grace. Last week, there was a quote, Monsignor, that we didn't focus on, and that's on page um, 335 at the bottom, section 11, number 3. Where it says, as therefore to such as now bear fruit, he hath promised to give abundantly in the way of multiplying his grace, not in the way of changing his instruction, for the Lord himself abideth and the same Father is revealed. So accordingly to the people of later times, also did one in the same Lord by his coming vouchsafe a larger gift of grace than that which was in the Old Testament. You know, with this new life, as friends, as sons and daughters, he gives more grace so that we have that ability to follow that which was in our, it's in there. It's just covered with stuff. So it was, you know, when you think about uh, Jesus' relationship with his disciples, um, it, it it was that friendship. Um, that he was he was bringing them into that relationship. Um, that's you know I think that's yeah. what Irenaeus is talking about here. That something has wonderfully has changed because of Christ. What you see in the entire flow of salvation history is basically the underlying requirement of what's called the two ways. We see it in the the Didache. We see it all through Scripture. I'm your Creator. You're my creation. You are to fear, to love, to, to serve, uh, uh, to worship me, God says. If you do, we're going to have a great time together. If you don't, there's going to be this. And you see that all the way through Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus. You see, you know, here's what you're supposed to do. If you, if you don't, here's what's going to happen. You see that all the way through. And what we see it is the battle from the beginning of the devil trying to destroy people from the very beginning. And what happens, the flow is that over time, that initial underlying precepts that are in our heart get becomes overshadowed, becomes tainted, becomes lost, becomes confused with all kinds of things, whether it's lost in Egypt, whether it's 
leaders that have added to, subtracted from, whether it's because God at times is being very forceful to put rules in our life to get you in line. Even at times, Moses and and Irenaeus talks about this, at times when, because we're so bad, will he soften some of the laws, the divorce laws, to, to, to keep us in there, to keep a remnant? Well, by the time of Christ and he frees us, Again, does that mean all of a sudden, folk, that we've got we're everything's cleared away, as as Paul says in Second Corinthians five seventeen, we're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul says in Ephesians, put off the old man, put on the new. I mean, is it that easy? Well, it isn't that easy because of the continual battle. So, we have the apostolic tradition. That's what Irenaeus emphasizes all mm-hmm. the way through that this original precepts is still the foundation is still the foundation to that which Christ taught his apostles. And I want to draw your attention back to, and Monsignor, I know I'm I'm being way too long-winded here, but I want to draw attention back to page, the book chapter 3, when he says, um, on the bottom of page 203, of only true and living faith, which the church hath received from the apostles and dispenses to her sons. For indeed, the Lord of all gave to his apostles the power of the gospel. And by them, we have known the truth, i.e. the teaching of the Son of God, to whom also the Lord said, he that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despises you, despises me, and him that sent me. For by no others have we known the method of our salvation than those by whom the gospel came to us, which was both in the first place preached by them and afterwards by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. To me, that is Irenaeus taking this whole long thing and saying, okay, how do, where am I going to go to find out? Where am I, where am I going to go to find out the truth, this, this voice within me? Um, is it all up to me? It, you know, it, it's so covered up with everything. How do I know? And that's why we will get to in chapter 5, oh, I won't be able to find it where now, where he says very clearly, um, come to the church. That's what he says. He says, come to the church. Um, escape to the church. Like, like Moses and the people out of Egypt, come to the church because it is there where you're going to find the thread of all this that we receive from Christ in the apostolic tradition, which became the New Testament, which the church fought for in the councils, which the the, the popes of of Rome had to fight through through their decrees, and which we've been passed down to us by the catechisms that we can mm-hmm. hold in our hands. The foundation of that catechism is this thread of revelation that we've received from the very beginning. Um, and then just to, I think, just for us to remind ourselves um, what's in the back of Irenaeus' mind through all this, you know, he's dealing with these heretics that are saying that law, the laws of the Old Testament are bad. Um, and he keeps pushing us to understand this is all part of God's economy of salvation. Yep. So it has these laws have an intrinsic value. And I, Marcus, I, I underlined a passage in the middle of page 349, um, chapter... Um, 16. Six, 16, um, in the second paragraph of section 1. These things, these laws, then were given in sign, but they were not signs without a symbol. That is, without a subject, nor idol, given as they were by a wise artificer. But the circumcision after the flesh signified the spiritual circumcision. And I wrote down on the, my, on the side, um, this is, I wrote the word sacramental down. Um, not exactly right here, but these are not, law, laws are not sacraments, but they point the way. Um, if you will, yeah. and 
and Irenaeus is is not wanting to say, you know, these laws were bad things, and it's good that we've swept them away. These things have brought the people of God back from ser- their servile nature um, to, to being sons and daughters. Yeah, if, you know, I can't explain to my young child why he shouldn't touch the top of the stove. I just got to say, don't do it. I can't explain right. why. And when they came back from Egypt, God couldn't just say, well, go back to doing what you're supposed to do. He had to use visual mm-hmm. images. He had to use physical constraints to reach their soul. And that's what Irenaeus talks about on page 345 in section 14, chapter 14, section 3, when he says, And so he appointed unto the people the making of the tabernacle and the building of the temple and the election of the Levites, the sacrifices also, the oblations and the cautionary precepts, the cautionary precepts, and all the rest of their service by the law. It is true he needs himself none of these. God didn't need them. For he is always full of all good things and hath in himself all order of sweetness and all breathings of pleasant incense even before Moses was. But he was schooling the people, apt easily to return to idols, by many callings, instructing them to persevere and serve God, by things of the second order, calling them to things of the first. In other words, by the typical to the true, by the temporal to the eternal, and by the carnal to the spiritual, and by the earthly to the heavenly. You know, to me, Monsignor, those are the foundations to where sacramental economy would develop later. Mm-hmm. is the physical points to the spiritual. Yes. It's interesting how he we find that in here. It's fascinating to me. All right, everybody. Thank you for sticking with us all this. We're almost 70 minutes into this program. Thank you. I hope you, you do take breaks, at least bathroom breaks, during the midst of this. We'd love to hear from you. Next week, we're going to come back. So that was an overview of chapters 12 through 16. Next week, we're going to focus on 17 and 18, which really deal with with the Eucharist as well as uh, uh, sacrifice uh, and how Irenaeus dealt with that in the Old Testament quotes that he used to help us understand to make sure we're doing it correctly and validly. Monsignor, would you close this in a a word of prayer? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for the family that we have been privileged to be a part of right from the very beginning. And I love the way that St. Irenaeus reminded us that those great figures in the Old Testament are our brothers in the faith. Help us to understand our place in this whole wonderful scheme of salvation that the Lord oversaw from the beginning to the end. Help us to be faithful in that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thanks, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to being with you again next week.